This is what the sovereign Lord showed me, a basket of ripe fruit. What do you see, Amos, he asked. A basket of ripe fruit, I answered. Then the Lord said to me, the time is ripe for my people Israel. I will spare them no longer. In that day, declares the sovereign Lord, the songs in the temple will turn to wailing. Many, many bodies flung everywhere. Silence. Hear this, you who trample the needy and do away with the poor of the land, saying, when will the new moon be over that we may sell grain and the Sabbath be ended that we may market wheat? Skimping on the measure, boosting the price, and cheating with dishonest scales. Buying the poor with silver and the needy for a pair of sandals, selling even the sweepings with the wheat. The Lord has sworn by himself the pride of Jacob. I will never forget anything they have done. Will not the land tremble for this, and all who live in it mourn? The whole land will rise like the Nile. It will be stirred up and then sink like the river of Egypt. Thank you, Barbara. And if you have your Bible and want to turn to Amos 8, we will be in that chapter this morning. We uh, uh, began the season of Lent with Ash Wednesday. Aside from the season of Advent, it's probably the longest Uh, running season we observe here at our church going back about 20 years. And so just as a reminder, if it's new to you or if you think it belongs to another particular group of Christians, uh, Christians have practiced this season for quite some time. And it's a season that represents the 40 days Jesus spent in the wilderness before what we refer to as his public ministry. And the Christian calendar locates the season in the period just prior to, the weeks prior to Holy Week. And the time where we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. The season of Lent, it seems, because of its theme of repentance and reflection, seems to make Amos very consequential to us. Would you pray with me? Lord God, give us ears to hear your word today, lest we go hungry. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer, and all God's people say. Jesus faced the tempter in Matthew 4. After 40 days in the wilderness, the scripture describes Jesus' condition as famished. There the tempter approached him, culminating in that period of fasting and being away from most all others, in fact, all others. The words come to Jesus, if you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Matthew tells us that Jesus answered, it is written, one does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus had fed on the words of God from his early age. In fact, it's Luke that tells us that Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. It's the gospel writers who tell us that Jesus even spent time in the temple uh, after his mom and dad had left. 
Jesus knew the Torah. That is the first five books of the Bible. It would have been something that he was steeped in, he learned, he heard. It was, after all, the history of the very people out of which he was born. If you aren't familiar with the book of Deuteronomy, it is the combination of two words. It means the second giving of the law. It is the retelling of Israel's history, including the law given for those who had not lived or had not been maybe familiar with Mount Sinai. Only two people entered the promised land from that group, Joshua and Caleb. All the rest, remember, had resisted and rebelled in the wilderness. And so a whole group of young people heard Moses retell them their own story along with the giving of the law before they were going in to inhabit the land. This story, this story of what had happened to the people, their exodus from Egypt, their wandering in the wilderness, and their preparation to take the promised land has never escaped Israel's history books, Israel's poetry, or Israel's prophets. Famished from the lack of food and facing down the tempter and the temptations where Jesus could have chosen his own story, his own truth, done his own thing, he recalled from what he had been taught the wilderness experience of Israel. He may have recalled Deuteronomy 8, verse number 3. He humbled you by letting you hunger, then by feeding you with manna, with which neither you nor your ancestors were acquainted, in order to make you understand that one does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Jesus had heard the stories. He was raised with the narrative and given the opportunity to choose his own story, to choose his own truth and go his own way. He faced down the tempter by recalling what God had said. He had fed on the very words of the Lord. When we, when we discuss the meaning of the incarnation, that is, why in the world did God become human? Why did God take on flesh? One of the things that we often point to is identification. That is, when we talk about God become flesh, we're saying that God came to identify with us. So if we apply that to the story of Jesus uh, fasting in the wilderness and then facing down the tempter, we are learning that Jesus faced the same temptations to choose our own story, our own truth, and our own way. And instead of resisting by appealing to the words we've been fed on, we tend to, we tend to give in to making our own way and our own choices that way, we can say, if God's going to identify with us in the flesh, He encounters what we have in the flesh. Tempted to give in, like we often do, Jesus did not. And after uh, Jesus turned the water into wine at the wedding in Cana, Jesus ventures to Jerusalem. And there He took a whip of cords. Remember the story? He took a whip of cords and he drove out the weekly flea market in the outer courts of the temple. And though there were some there who were looking for explanations. Some were asking Jesus for his ID that confirmed that he had the authority to do exactly what he was doing to meddle and disrupt the financial misdeeds that were taking place just outside the house of prayer for all people. And Jesus said, destroy this temple. 
and in three days I will raise it up. Those who were looking for Jesus' credentials rightly wondered how even a construction worker by trade could in three days rebuild what had taken 46 years to complete. So John tells us that Jesus said this, but he was speaking of the temple of his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he said this, and they believed the scriptures and the word that Jesus had spoken. So, so Jesus himself had told the disciples, he had told them that after he is no longer with them in the flesh, no longer with them in the body, he said that the Spirit of God would accompany them, would come to them and help them understand and lead them into all truth. The Spirit of God would help them put it all together. The things that they didn't understand, for example, at that place at the temple where they are also are hearing Jesus driving out the great flea market where folks were supposed to gather for prayer. They were wondering by what authority. They were wondering what was going on. And then when he said, destroy this temple and I will raise it up in three days, they're also wondering. John gives us some foreshadowing. He says, they probably don't understand it then because they didn't understand that someone could be raised from the dead. So there they are hearing God's words and the Spirit of God after the resurrection helps them put all the pieces together, helps them make sense of a world that no longer did with the death of their Messiah, now raised from the dead. Jesus fulfilled in his own life what nobody else had or would. That is, Jesus did the very things that he was given to do without wavering, even in the face of temptation. And what happens in the wilderness is we learn that Jesus is fed on the very words of God, and he faces down the temptations that he faces with the very word of the Lord. Like then, no one really liked the words that Jesus gave. And much less the fact that he had been faithful in living out the words he'd learned. So you know what we like to do when we don't like what we're hearing? We change the channel. We pick a different source for information. And if that doesn't work, and we keep hearing it from the same people, we just disassociate from them. I'll no longer be your friend. I don't want to hang out with you. I don't want to be around you anymore because I'm hearing things that are challenging me. My perceptions, my understanding of what's real, I don't want to. That's exactly what happened to Jesus. When they no longer wanted to hear what he had to say, when they no longer wanted to witness what he was doing, it was determined, even by all of his opponents, he should die. And so, and so what did they do? They killed him. And what we are glad for is that God gave him back to us. Not much has changed. I mean, listen, folks. We who are called Christian, sometimes we don't even like hearing what Jesus has to say. And we'll choose anything else. We'll choose whatever else. 
to avoid hearing what Jesus says to us. And believe it or not, sometimes we don't like hearing how much God loves us because we know the demand of love. Not the demand that causes us to have to do things, but the demand that we have to admit that we are loved, which changes us. And we just like ourselves too much. Change isn't really what we want. When we get... uh, a vision of what happens when we prefer our own story, our own truth, and our own way. What we learn from the scriptures, particularly from Amos in chapter 8, is we learn that people go hungry and are never satisfied. About 10 years ago, a, a popular preacher in Texas warned of the beginning of the world's end He did so because he had gotten together with another fellow and they had decided that they had been watching the signs in the sky. And in that particular period, over about 12 to 18 months, we were supposed to experience what are called four blood moons. And so the prediction went on that that would be the beginning of the end of the world. And here we are 10 years later. Beginnings take a long time. What happened is, is that became the tools with which a distraction would be made away from giving people the food they need from the Word of God, where we began fundraising for projects and grifting for pilgrimages and distracting from the truth. What, why does it bother me so? Well, because prior to that, long ago, many, many years ago, when our schedule was different, when our times of meeting were different, it was my favorite Sunday morning preacher to hear. And then I don't know what happened. All of his content moved away from talking about what the Scriptures say to, to looking to see when the end of the world was coming. What's funny is, is that same teacher should have known that Jesus said nobody knows. Nobody, nobody knows. You know, making money off of people grounded in the fear of the end of the world is not altogether different than what the religious folks were doing in Amos' day in Israel. No, they weren't offering 88 reasons why Jesus is coming back in, in, you know, B.C. 788. But they were offering a distraction from the words on which people would feed and find all that they need. It's, It's not that it's bad to mention the end of the world. But for we Christians who obsess over the end of the world, we are ignoring a peculiar and particular hope that we claim to have. And that peculiar and particular hope that we claim to have is in a kingdom that one day will come where what we've been promised will be fully realized. Where, where, where what we expect is, is that what has been wrong will be made right once and for all. Where What Jesus gave and gives us will one day include a world where Christians don't quibble over the meaning of blood moons and television ads. 
Maybe you didn't watch the Super Bowl. There will no longer be a a tit-for-tat between a manufactured us versus them. That what will be enjoyed that day will be a world at peace where, where the worries of our lives, the conditions of our mortality, and the limitations of our finitude are met with a new heaven and a new earth. So different, so different will it be that we now know that our reaction will not be, what does our mansion look like? Or what part of heaven will I live in? But we'll be forever pinching ourselves that someone loves us the way God does. Forever pinching ourselves that someone could possibly love us as completely, providing as much assurance, as much confidence, and as much certainty as we think we have to this day. We will finally experience a place where what is said is what is lived. So behind the imagery, all of this gets us behind the imagery that's going on in in Amos 8. The people of God have confidence, or Amos does, that God will do what's necessary, you ready, for His people to be part of His history in such a way that it stirs the imagination of all other peoples in God's history. Do you hear that? Amos had to have the conviction that the words he was given and the visions he was receiving were of the sort that God is telling his people that he will be actively involved in making them to be a people who will give evidence of God's love for the blessing and benefit of all others. He would stir the imagination for hope and peace and safety. Amos calls attention to a very different reality lived out by those that are called the people of God. So here we are. We're in chapter 8, eight weeks in Amos, nine next week. So if you haven't found the bits of hope that are contained along the way, next week promises that if you'll read all the way to the end of Amos, we'll hear good news explicitly where we've had to find it implicitly in the Scriptures. It should be clear from Amos. Hear this carefully. It should be clear from Amos that God's concern is with God's people. God's concern is with God's people We seem to think that our concern should be about all of those other people. Amos, though he starts with the prevailing nations around Israel, he hones his bullseye in, with the words of the Lord onto Israel. After he mentions all the other nations early, chapters 1 and 2, by the time you get to chapter 3, On to the end of Amos, his attention is focused on the people of God. It is as if to say, yes, everybody's doing a thing that they probably should not be doing, making choices that would be far against their own uh, own best interests. But God's concern is with God's people. So it stands to reason by logic that we ought to be concerned about God's people. 
that to spend our time being concerned with other people is actually to miss what's going on in Amos. You with me? Just making sure we're all, all together in that. Because there is a distraction out there that seems to catch our attention where we're always concerned about somebody else and not us. The season of Lent is not for us to be concerned with somebody else but with us. If, if we're told not to worry about tomorrow because tomorrow has trouble of its own, we probably should also apply that to our experience. We should probably not worry about someone else's trouble because we have enough trouble of our own. Does that make, does that make sense? Does that work? The interest of Amos, more than anything else, is God setting his people right. God setting his people right. And when the church across the ages, God's people across the ages, falls short, God's determination, ready? God's determination to bring justice is on display. Now, you, I hope you caught what I said, judgment. Nope, I didn't, did I? Justice. You see, we forget that justice is setting things right. That's what justice means. In, in, in biblical language, it's, it's not uh, different than righteousness. God's looking for what's right. And when he finds his people not right, then God is going to set them right. You with me? Okay. So when we begin to assess what's going on in the world around us, and we see signs and symbols, and we start thinking, look at God judging the rest of the world, we are probably doing it wrong. I don't know how many times a talking head preacher was, a, was asked on television by a, a, a news person, why in the world did, say for instance, Katrina happen, or Andrew happen, or why this earthquake, or why this flood, and all of them have this pat answer, it's because of this group. They've just never read Amos. Or if they have, they've just put cotton in their ears. Because Amos doesn't say that the calamities that are experienced are because of those people. Amos says the calamities have come because God's trying to get his, his people's attention and set them right. Now, if you don't think that that's a God of love, then you're just not paying attention. You just must have just had children and said, go do whatever you want to do. How'd that work out for you? No, no, it didn't work very well. So when, when these talking preacher heads tell us the calamities that befall us are a result of this group or that, it's an indication, hear me, because this is an indictment on us. This is why Amos has been so hard. Because it is like, oh, did I ever, ever say that? Yeah, I wish I could go back and listen to myself for the last 35 years and say, did I ever say that the reason these things happen is because of those people? If I did, I need to repent. I don't know, but those cassettes, cassettes, right? They're probably all gone by now. Huh? Right? Yeah. When... When that happens, it's an indication 
the, the preachers themselves has shattered the very mirror that God is always holding up to his people. Playing the blame them game becomes a means to grift from those fed anything but the word of the Lord. It's not new. Amos is given a vision at the top of chapter 8. You heard Barbara read it. Amos, what do you see? And I said, a basket of summer fruit. By the time we get to the end, we find out that that is, there's a contrasting image, a basket of fruit, and here's this, the time is surely coming, says the Lord God, when I will send a famine in the land, not a famine of bread or a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. Sandwiched between fruit and famine are these images. You ready for them? Sandwiched between fruit and famine are the images that sound like this. Shall not the land tremble? Why, just a couple of weeks we were shook by a 5.2 earthquake in Oklahoma. Felt all over the place. Shall not the land tremble, we fear. All of it rise like the Nile it is a callback to those living in that day that knew that from time to time the Nile came out of its banks and the havoc wreaked on commerce and, and society and culture was terrible. And so this, this wasn't infrequent, an infrequent thing. It happened often. I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. Earthquakes, floods, eclipses emphasizing these images over their meaning is one way we avoid what's being said to us. In other words, looking for blood moons is missing any sort of message that it would mean. It doesn't mark the end of the world. It's to get our attention to say, people of God, hear this, you that trample on the needy and bring ruin to the poor of the land. I mean, that's right after Amos is asked what he sees. Now, I know, I know, I really know that none of us trample on the needy. None of us bring ruin to the poor of the land. Go read the ongoing rest of that. We, we may discover that we participate and are complicit in ways that we've not taken the time to think through. In, in, other words, in other words, we like to talk about Christian theology. What is it we should believe? And we forget that what we believe about God ha- is in, intended to show up in what we do in our living for God. In other words, we have come to a day where the thing that everybody's most concerned is, do you have, are you believing rightly? And then we find all the reasons why Christian ethics are unnecessary. Well, that was two millennia ago. We can't apply those principles to today. Well, well why? You, you know, we have a particular form of economy. We couldn't possibly disrupt that. Why, why we have a certain stratification in our social order. We couldn't dare level it out. We can't do anything to change that. That's because we've decided 
that a particular form of life, the way of life, is much more important than following the convictions we've been given, the things we're supposed to believe. They really don't really matter over here because God really couldn't expect us to be God's people. Could he? Could he? Listen, in Amos, the full expectation of God was that Israel would always be his people. And what's interesting is, we like the part in the Bible that says God takes our sins and casts them as far as the east is from the west into the deepest of all oceans. But are you paying attention here? The one thing God said he doesn't forget is when his people forget to be his people. Oh, so many things run through my mind. I need to stay on task. You know, we, we uh, spend a lot of time telling people where they're going to go. That we forget. That the one thing God said he's not forgetting is when God's people aren't their people. That ought to be as disturbing Because if God's going to forget and forgive the sins of the world, but retain the memory of God's people not being God's people, you tell me which is more frightening. You don't think Amos is intending to say, look, every time you hear about an earthquake, and they had a big one in about 760, right around the time Amos was uh, preaching, Every time you see an eclipse, and they had one just uh, some years before Amos was preaching, and the floods in the Nile were just on, often schedule. Every time they saw those, you don't think Amos is telling Israel, listen, God is telling you to be his people. God is telling you. The worst form of justice is when God's people don't have an interest in things being set right. Where all we're interested in is vindication. I'm meddling here for just a second because none of you are in a holding office. Unless I'm just mistaken. Any of you running for office that I need to know about? I'm, I'm meddling here. When religious folk get in office and they're going to claim to be Christian every one of their policies ought to have as their guideline not trampling the poor and the needy. And if they're interested in anything else, governing everyone else's decisions, they're doing it wrong. Doing it wrong. God's interest is in a form of justice that sets things right not achieves my personal agenda. Okay, meddling over. What happens is is sometimes we actually practice the things we condemn. That's no helpful reflection on a message of love and hope and forgiveness. So what form of justice do we want? An earthquake, a flood, an eclipse? (laughs) Those are nothing. Those are nothing. 
Because Amos concludes and says from the words of the Lord, no, here's what's going to happen. You think a famine is bad. You think an eclipse is bad. You think the Nile flooding is bad. You think earthquakes are bad. Here's what's really bad. When there is a famine of the word of the Lord. When there is a famine of hearing the word of the Lord. That's the phrase. A famine of hearing the word of the Lord. So pay careful attention. There are two things going on here. That is, there's a lack of the words from the Lord. That could be my fault, given a role and responsibility. But since we're all called to give the words of the Lord as hope and good news, we're all implicated. The lack of words from the Lord. And then the second, a lack of hearing the words of the Lord. So a a lack of the words from the Lord could be that we're talking about those like Asamiah who were not giving the people the words of the Lord. Instead, he was giving them what they wanted to hear and what would make his pockets full. That's what was going on in Israel at Bethel. The lack of words from the Lord. And then the people weren't hearing the words of the Lord. Listen, they could have ignored Amaziah. Jesus did. When the tempter came, Jesus could have chosen all of what was going on in the prevailing religious habits and practices. Chose his own story, chose his own truth, and chose his own way, and he didn't. Why? Because he had heard the words of the Lord. The the worst part about it is, is that if the Lord hides himself The question is, does he hear or will he hear our cries for justice? If we want the world to be set right, wouldn't it also include we ourselves want to be right? Are you ready for the good news? That's rough, isn't it? The good news? The good news that in Jesus' coming and his faithfulness, his faithfulness is for us, with us, and given to us. So that while we should be aware and alert to the ways in which we are not being the people of God, we are safe in Jesus because as a result of the resurrection and God's goodness and grace, our lives are hidden with Christ and God. All we would say is that doesn't get us off the hook from working toward faithfulness by God's Spirit. So, the word to us. In anticipation of what's to come in the end of chapter 9 and all of Habakkuk. Is to say, God, would you hear our cries for justice and start with me. Would you pray with me?